Welcome to Faith and Science. My name is Dr. John Ashton, and today I'm going to just briefly talk about some of the issues that practicing scientists face when working in the uh, secular world of, of science, and also uh, look at the, uh, some of the issues that relate to belief in creation. I work in industrial uh, chemical research and also uh, in universities, and I meet a number of scientists. Many scientists are, are Christians, and the issue of creation and a young earth uh, doesn't usually come into everyday science. But these are issues that many lay people uh, ask of scientists. And in these days, with radiometric dating, uh, suggesting that the life on earth is millions of years old, some people are questioning, is the Bible account of creation and a fairly recent life on earth creation actually true? There is a lot of pressure out there which stops scientists publishing the evidence for creation. For example, just a few months ago, the prestigious science journal PLOS, spelled P-L-O-S-1, uh, published a retraction following the publication of an article which described the amazing design of the hand. The article was called Biomechanical Characteristics of Hand Coordination in Grasping Activities of Daily Living. It was published back in January 5, 2016. However, on the current page on the internet now, there is a retraction by the publishers. It reads as follows. Following publication... Readers raise concerns about the language in this article that makes reference to a creator and about the overall rationale and findings of the study. Upon receiving these concerns, the PLOS One editors have carried out an evaluation of the manuscript and pre-publication process and they sought further advice on the work from experts in the editorial board. This evaluation confirmed concerns with the scientific rationale presented and language which were not adequately addressed during the peer review. Consequently, the Plus One editors consider that the work cannot be relied on and retract this publication. The editors apologise to readers for the inappropriate language in the article and the errors during the evaluation process. Now, that was published on the 4th of March, 2016. So it is quite interesting to see that the simple mention of the word a creator in the, in the abstract, um, the sentence involved read, the explicit functional link indicates that the biomechanical characteristics of tendious connective architecture between muscles and articulations is the proper design by the creator to perform a multitude of daily tasks in a comfortable way. So clearly, the scientists researching the hand believed in a creator, but the fact that they believed in a creator 
meant that their article was censored by other scientists. So this is the situation that many scientists face today who believe that there is very strong evidence for creation as opposed to evolution. So what uh, can they do about this? Well, some scientists are actually publishing books. They're writing about this. Um, this way, uh, the information is getting out. But of course, there is a lot of uh, issues involved in even getting books published today uh, by regular publishers. And so many of the books coming out today are coming out only with Christian publishers. Again, mainstream secular publishers are often not publishing these books. There are some uh, powerful exceptions, of course, and one of these exceptions has been a book that uh, was published reasonably recently uh, by Stephen Meyer. Now, Stephen Meyer is a Cambridge-educated philosopher of science, and his book is actually published by Harper One, a major uh, mainstream publisher. His book is called Darwin's Doubt, The Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design. Now, this book um, has been selling very strongly. And uh, on Amazon, there are 747 reviews. That's a huge number of reviews when you think about it. And this book challenges the main... Uh, arguments that Darwin had put forward, and that is that there is evidence in the fossil record of evolution. What uh, Dr. Stephen Myers has successfully shown in his book and demonstrated in detail is that in actual fact the fossil record is lacking. What we see in the fossil record are simply fully formed animals. They, we don't see the evolution of change from one animal into another. We don't see the intermediate species. And in his book, he, he documents this very thoroughly. Now, of course, this has raised uh, a lot of interest and hence the over 700 reviews on Amazon, which you can you know, check for yourself uh, when you look at um, the reviews there. And, of course, uh, there are quite a number of views which are uh, detracting. But Stephen Meyer is a, um, a highly educated man. He received his PhD from the University of Cambridge in the philosophy of science. And the arguments that he put forward are also well documented in terms of their sources, so this is the challenge that educators face now. We have powerful evidence that evolution didn't happen. The evidence isn't there in the fossil record. But when scientists attempt to refer to this in the scientific literature, they are censored. So this raises some concerns uh, with regard to our education but it should also be encouraging for us as Christians as well that there is a lot of evidence actually supporting the creator position. 
One of the early books that challenged uh, evolution was a book by Michael Denton um, called Evolution, A Theory in Crisis. Recently, Dr. Denton has put out a, a new book uh, called Evolution, A Theory Still in Crisis. And this book, again, explores the uh, lack of evidence uh, to explain a mechanism for evolution. And so this is something that is really important to understand. Many people talk about evolution. You know, it's, a, it's an everyday thing. So, you know, this animal evolved into that or, or this plant evolved into that type of plant, these sort of things. But it's very important to understand that at the present time, scientists actually don't have a mechanism to explain how evolution can form new body parts. Now, this may, you know, come as a, a surprise uh, to people, but that's the situation. And the reason for this is that when evolution requires, requires chemical changes to a very large molecule that we refer to as DNA, in order to produce some new type of body part, requires a very large change to the structure of this molecule. And that is, it requires a chemical change. Now, that chemical change requires it to follow the laws of chemistry. And we know from the laws of chemistry that to produce the change required to make a new body part requires chemical reactions that actually don't occur in nature, naturally. They only occur under special uh, environmental conditions that are actually found in a cell, in a living cell. And even then, those chemical reactions are very specific. And so in order to produce a new body part requires quite a significant amount of specific reactions in a specific order. Now, that's sort of like a code. In other words, it requires, it's sort of like playing a piece of music. If you want the sound to come out according to the melody that you recognise as a new song, those notes have to be played in a specific order. If they're not played in a specific order, you don't produce the new song. Now, it's the same in making a new body part. The new chemicals that have to be inserted into the DNA molecule to make the new code have to be in a specific order. Now, we know that to write music and, uh, and, and writing music and sound is far simpler than, you know, by many, many orders of magnitude than writing the code for a new DNA part. Musicians can write new songs that make sense and sound pleasing. But to date, no scientist can write new code to make a new type of body part. So this is how complex the code is, and the code has complex interactions with itself. So we know that there's no straightforward chemical mechanism whereby this code could form in a meaningful way. Because for the code to 
form in a way so that it, it actually means something usually requires a programmer. Let me illustrate this another way. If we were to write the operations manual for a nuclear submarine, we couldn't just sit down at a typewriter and just be typing away and typing away and typing away and then hoping that over time the correct manual would form. We know that that just doesn't happen. And yet to make a change to, say, for a fish fin to evolve into a shoulder and leg system would be far more complicated. The codes required to make those changes from a fish to an amphibian are far, far more complicated than the operations manual for a nuclear submarine. And so we know that in order for something like the operations manual for a nuclear submarine or the programs that run the computers in a manufacturing uh, facility such as um, manufacturing automobiles, these sort of things, they require highly intelligent programmers and a lot of research and trial and error even by the highly intelligent programmers to work. So we know that those programs would never arise by chance. In fact, we can do the maths. We can do the uh, probability calculations and we can show that it is absolutely impossible for the code for a new body part to arise by chance. So why are the scientific journals so opposed to the mention of a creator? Well, this is a question that is uh, difficult to answer. It is obviously a result of peer pressure, but is it selective peer pressure? It's obviously, it would seem to me anyway, to be peer pressure from people who do not believe in a creator. One of the reasons for this is probably statements that have now been made by the Australian Academy of Science and many other academies of science around the world in other countries such as the United States, the UK and so forth. And these academies have made statements to the effect that they now regard the theory of evolution as a fact. In these statements, they don't, uh, to my knowledge anyway, the ones that I've seen, supply any scientific evidence for that. It, to me, it reads simply as a statement of faith. This is what they believe. They don't supply any scientific uh, research for these statements. Sometimes there's a, a collective statement say that this is demonstrated by an abundance of research, abundance of research that has uh, been produced over the years, but they don't actually cite any specific research. And in fact, on the contrary, we can go to uh, websites such as um, the University of California uh, reps, uh, website at Berkeley. Where on their uh, evolution uh, museum website they state that one of the main uh, challenges facing biologists is to try and work out how evolution happens and in particular how new body parts are formed. So this we see is a real interesting challenge in the area of science. We have scientists who see the abundant evidence for creation are being censored from actually writing about it and telling people about it unless they publish independently in books. 
I find this very disturbing. And it's interesting, uh, another aspect, as I mix in the uh, scientific circles among um, professors and researchers in Australia and overseas, many uh, scientists that I meet actually have not looked at the issue of evolution from a Christian perspective. Often they're Christians and they're not working in that area and they haven't haven't looked into it. It's an area that they have questions about, but they they haven't had time to look into it. So many of these scientists are are very interested to uh, discuss the topic, and have certainly a number of expressed interest in uh, my book that I published called Evolution Impossible: uh, Twelve Reasons Why um, Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life. Now, it's interesting when some people review this book, they say, well, look, Ashton doesn't understand what he's talking about because we know the theory of evolution is only for living things. But really what people are looking for is an explanation of how we came to be here, and that involves how the first non-living molecules formed the first living cell. Now, many uh, diehard evolutionists say, well, no, that's not part of evolution. Well, in actual fact, it is defined as chemical evolution. And it's interesting that one of the leading proponents of chemical evolution in the past, uh, Professor Dean Kenyon at San Francisco State University, uh, has now become a young earth creationist because as he did his further research into the possibility of a living cell forming from non-living molecules, he realised it was absolutely impossible. And one of the reasons why it is um, impossible is just the complexity of a, of a living cell. You see... For the DNA to work, it not only needs the code that is embodied in the DNA, but at the same time, it needs a code reading system. It also then needs a little factory that can interpret the code reading system and translate that into the construction of new molecules according to the code, which we call uh, uh, those little factories called ribosomes. So those structures actually have to be present for the uh, cell to be able to read and make use of the code that is in the DNA. And yet those structures themselves, the code reading machines, the little factories to make the new molecule, are all encoded for in the original DNA. And this problem has been recognised by leading biologists. And when they speak out about this, often they're told by their their colleagues, when I say often, sometimes I have read of accounts where they say, woo, 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 don't let people know that we don't actually know how evolution works. So getting back to when I talk to other academics, many of them are very interested to read information about the evidence, or to read the evidence, why evolution is impossible. And that, that's why it's important for us to, to recognise that the evidence is already there that evolution is impossible. So this leads us to the situation of, well, what about evidence for a creator? What about evidence for God? 
This is something that is often left out of the creation-evolution debate. As a Christian, I read often uh, books, biographies and accounts by, by other Christians. And in these accounts, I read of account after account of answers to prayer, of God's intervention in amazing ways in the lives of these people. And this leads me to look at how does, how does prayer work? What is going on here? One of the other arguments that is used uh, to support that evolution must be impossible is the concept of the mind. One of America's leading philosophers, Thomas Nagel, recently published a book, Mind and the Cosmos, Why the Darwinian... Uh, why the materialist neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. Now, Professor Nagel is actually a, uh, an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. But he points out that evolution requires this mechanical, chemical changes to the DNA, uh, supposedly based on mutations, but as I've pointed out uh, well, there's no evidence to date that the mutations can produce the amount of, evolu- of uh, change that is required. And he points out that these chemical changes, changing DNA, how, can't produce the mind. They can't produce thoughts. Let us do an experiment now. As a, as a research scientist, I like doing experiments and because these are ways that we can actually test things and and look at the evidence we have here and now. So what I'd like you to do, and I think this is even legal to do while you're driving, I'd just like you to move your little finger. So you moved your little finger. Now, were you programmed to move your little finger at this particular moment, or was that your choice? And how did you do it? You thought about it, didn't you? You thought and you moved your little finger. Now I'd like to ask you another question. Does your brain have mass? Does it weigh something? Could you weigh your brain? And the answer, of course, is yes. Yes, um, if you were dead, hopefully, it could be cut out of you and put on some scales and weighed. It has mass. What about volume? Does your brain have volume? Well, yes, we believe our brain occupies that part of our skull. Again, uh, if we were dead, it could be cut out and squeezed into a measuring cylinder and we could measure its volume. But then let me ask you the question, do your thoughts have mass? Can you weigh your thoughts? Can you put your thoughts on a balance and weigh them? The answer, of course, is no, you can't weigh your thoughts. Can you put your thoughts in a measuring cylinder and weigh your volume? No. Our thoughts are non-material. But think about it. Our non-material thoughts actually cause changes in electrical voltages in your brain that affected nerves, that affected your muscles, that enabled you to move your little finger. With those thoughts, you could create a poem that nobody else has ever written. You could create a work of art. You could create a new sculpture. You could create some new machine. Indeed, our our thoughts have led to many new inventions, many new works of art. 
Our thoughts are non-material. Our body, in effect, is simply a transducer that converts our thoughts into mechanical energy. It also provides a reproductive energy system that enables our thoughts to be maintained and the concept of, of life. The Apostle Paul wrote uh, about his body being a tent and he was in this tent. And in a way, that's what it's like. Our thoughts are in our body. Our body is a way of simply enabling our thoughts to become a physical reality in this world. But our thoughts themselves are non-material. God talks about how God is non-material as well. The Bible talks about it as being spirit and spiritual. When we go into this area of uh, the non-material existence, this is out totally outside the evolutionary model. The evolutionary model can't explain this. But what we observe, what we can see, the fact that we can move our little finger... Is very provides very, very strong evidence that links us to the whole picture that the Bible talks about, a non-material, spiritual, creator God, a mind that was able to create and design all the living systems that we see around us. And it would seem so reasonable that if our thoughts can actually move a physical body and cause changes in a physical organism, why can't our thoughts connect with the other non-material thoughts of God? I think that when we look at the reviews of Answers to Prayer, and indeed in my own uh, experience in life, there's power, I see powerful evidence for the existence of God, for this non-material entity. And this opens up a whole new area. It also explains the marvellous design that we see in nature. Creation around us is, is just full of design from plants and animals to the uh, sexual reproduction system, which is far more complex than many of us realise. In fact, just last week, I think it was, I read in the paper how one of the medical researchers at the University of Newcastle is going to be looking into how birth happens, how human birth happens. And he says, we really don't understand the mechanisms and what produces the amazing changes in the mother's body and in the baby at the time of birth. In the next episode of Faith and Science, I'm planning to talk about other scientists' reaction to these very issues and what they have written in the area of faith and science. I'm Dr. John Ashton, and I hope you can join us next time on Faith and Science. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.